So I'm 18 years old and I'm standing in a scout hut in Reading. You know, I can clearly remember the brown wood panelled walls and the smell. It's a small room and there's no stage, so later on the audience will be on the same level as us and we've just finished the sound check. I'm on tour and we're playing in schools, churches and other venues around the UK. Um, it's the early 90s, uh, so the evening is a combination of music, testimonies and an evangelistic speaker. I was there as part of the music, singing with four others. Uh, Kim, our tour manager, has just come off the phone. Fred, our speaker for the evening, isn't going to make it. His wife has just gone into labour several weeks early and she asks the question, would anyone be prepared to speak? Uh, there is silence. Uh, tentatively, I put my hand up and say that I'll give it a go. So I retreated to the back of the hut, found a Bible and quite literally the back of an envelope and began to make some notes. Interestingly, I can still remember the sermon. I spoke on the wise and foolish builders and how the storm had hit them both. Uh, the story is found at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I told a story about my grandma and Psalm 23. Oh, looking back now, I, I cringe slightly. I took the passage out of context. I wouldn't have approached it that way now. But people responded. And something within me shifted. Over the next few months, I began, started speaking at our concerts, me and my one and only sermon. But that experience planted something within me, something that it would take a further decade to reach fruition. But back in that scout hut as an 18-year-old is the start of what I'm doing now. Paul has changed. Last week, Andy Potter preached on Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. I loved the way Andy uh, reframed it as a fresh calling, not necessarily a complete conversion. Paul was a Jew and remained a Jew. Just now, he'd had this life-changing eureka moment, a moment where he had to rethink everything he believed. He'd encountered the risen Christ, was blinded, and now was having to learn to see again. Two weeks ago, Rick spoke about Paul's zeal, how Paul was a Pharisee, how he was zealous, passionate about protecting his religion from this new heresy, this scandalous idea circulating that Jesus was the Messiah. He was so zealous, in fact, that he'd left Jerusalem with papers, with a certificate giving him permission to execute anyone preaching this disruptive, subversive, dangerous new idea. He'd held the crowd's coats and looked on approvingly as they stoned Stephen to death for believing in Jesus. But Paul has changed. His passion for preserving the law and traditions of the Jews is turned into a passion for this new message. He's met the risen Christ in a vision and immediately goes to the synagogue to start to preach. It doesn't go well. You see, 
faith quickly turns to religion as ideas and doctrines become formalised. And religions, well, they frequently build buildings, places that they can gather with like-minded folk to teach those ideas. But it's not only the bricks and mortar that become solidified. The ideas, the teachings become fixed, doctrines become things to be defended. The status quo must be preserved, and that's what institutions do. Challenge the dominant thinking with a new idea or a new way of seeing or understanding some of those traditions and institutions often defend themselves. Of course, that doesn't happen today, does it? Um, Paul is passionate and he heads straight to the synagogue in Damascus to preach. We read in uh, verse 20, uh, once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. Well, his hearers are astonished and baffled. Well, of, of course they are. But soon he's labelled as dangerous and they plot to kill him. They've posted guards on the gates and the other believers have to lower him over the city walls in a wicker basket so that he can escape. Well, no doubt, with his head spinning, he heads to Jerusalem, a city he'd left only a few weeks earlier with instructions to kill Christians. Now he's returning to Jerusalem as one of them. Well, once in Jerusalem, he seeks out the other believers and of course they're terrified of him. They've heard news of how he sanctioned the execution of one of their own, one of their brothers, Stephen. But eventually it's Barnabas who's brave enough to go and meet with Paul. And the stories are true. He's changed. He's encountered the risen Christ. So vouching for him, Barnabas takes him to meet the others. We know from accounts elsewhere in the Bible that Peter was there and James, Jesus' brother. Can you imagine the conversation? We're not told what they said, but I wonder. Paul is there, his head full of new thoughts, new ideas, as zealous as, always, as he's always been, but now on fire from his encounter with Jesus. And then there's Peter, steady as a rock. Did Peter tell Paul about his experience in the garden that night? How he denied Jesus three times. And then how several days later, Jesus, the risen Christ, had forgiven him and commissioned him with three questions. Repentance, forgiveness and restoration. I wonder if in the upper room they spoke about Stephen. How did Paul respond Paul is zealous, all right, but maybe he still has some lessons to learn about repentance and forgiveness. While Paul is there in Jerusalem, he begins to preach to the Hellenistic Jews or to the Greek Jews. And again, the institution is there ready to defend itself. The dominant religious thinking of the day is not to be challenged and they plot to kill him. Well, the believers arrange for him to go to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus. And then, silence. From AD 36 to AD 46, we hear nothing from Paul. 
the story in Acts moves on to Peter and Paul goes quiet. Theologians talk about this decade as the silent years. We next meet Paul again in Antioch 10 years later at the start of his missionary journeys, but for a decade, nothing. What was Paul doing for those years? Well, preacher and commentator F.F. Bruce imagines him travelling around preaching and planting churches, but I think that probably says more about Bruce than it does about Paul. If he'd been travelling and preaching, we'd expect there to be some record of it. Now, there are some anomalies in Paul's story, the number of times he says he was shipwrecked and the number of accounts. Some attribute that to this decade, but in truth, we don't know. N.T. Wright's take is fascinating. He has Paul returning to Tarsus, licking his wounds, processing the threats to his life. He imagines Paul returning to the family's tent-making business, sharing his faith with his family and his loved ones. And it's not an unreasonable step to imagine that Paul's family, like him, may also have been deeply religious, possibly even Pharisees. They would have been deeply troubled by Paul's conversion, creating an extraordinary tension for Paul and his family. Imagine Paul's father and mother as he returns to Tarsus, his head full of these new, dangerous, and what are considered heretical ideas. In Paul's letter later to the Romans, he says this, I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart on behalf of my own family, my own flesh and blood relatives. Is this Paul reflecting back on the challenge of those first few years after his conversion? Were there people he loved very dearly with whom now he found himself estranged? The truth is, actually, we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. Except this I do know. None of us are completely changed and transformed overnight. Sometimes we think of faith a bit like turning on a light switch. And sometimes there is a moment, a moment for us, a moment for Paul, an experience, an encounter when the light switch goes on. A moment we look back to, a moment that is transformative. A Damascus road or a, or a scout hut in Reading. Something that is often the start of a journey. But I think faith is better understood as a plant that needs growing and nurturing, feeding and watering. And it can take time. It takes time to learn and to process. None of us arrives as the finished article, transformed overnight with all of our ideas fully formed. And Paul is the same. Growth takes time. And that's what I think Paul is doing for these 10 silent years. He is in Tarsus, tent making for a living, back in the ordinary, in the family business, in the nine to five. But during that time, did he reflect back on Stephen, now his Christian brother? Did Paul have some interior work to do? Repentance, forgiveness, finding absolution. Did the tears flow as the enormity of his actions hit him? And as he worked and studied, 
he began to see what it might mean to think and pray in a different way. You see, he's taking his tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Jewish scriptures, and reimagining, reforming them around Jesus. Paul never stopped studying scripture, but as a Jesus follower, he found himself looking back and looking back and reading it with fresh eyes. The classic example is the Shema, the great Jewish prayer from Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, verse 6, Paul reformulates that prayer around Jesus. There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He's not adding Jesus as a new God, but rather he's praying, thinking, looking back and finding Jesus in the midst of his own tradition. We read this in Galatians chapter 9. What is the point then of the law? Well, the purpose of the law was to keep a sinful people in the way of salvation until Christ came, inheriting the promise and distributing them, promises and distributing them to us. Its purpose was to make obvious to everyone that we are in ourselves out of right relationship with God. But now you've arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe. In Christ's life, the fulfilment of God's original promise. In Christ's family, there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us, you are all equal. That is, we all, that is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is seeing that this is what it had all meant. This is what it meant when God had promised to Abraham a worldwide family. This is what it meant when God said he would save his people through a new exodus and that now all would be included. That the Jewish story, his story, the story we call the Old Testament had reached its climax in the revelation of Israel's God in the person of Jesus. His death, his resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit. As Paul emerges into the light of history 10 years later in Antioch, we can see that he spent time thinking and reading and praying, preparing for the next stage of his journey. They might be silent years, but they're not unproductive years. So let's begin to bring this home to land, bring it to an end. What can we learn about this from Paul Well, first of all, have any of you had a moment, an experience? Maybe you heard a talk once, a sermon, or at a conference, something that set you off on a new path, a moment of calling or or even a moment of conversion, a eureka moment that changed you. Those moments are important. Moments of decision that we can look back on, like lines in the sand, new beginnings, the start of new directions. Perhaps if you're somebody who journals, this evening when you write in your journal, look back to that moment, to your longings, your hopes. What was birthed in you at that time? 
Secondly, waiting and forming and preparing are all part of the journey. They all belong. Often we look back at the edited highlights of someone's life and we see the dramatic moments. They're a bit like there'll be likeable Facebook posts or Instagram photos. We forget the hours of tent making, of family conflicts, of time spent processing, learning and reimagining. It might feel like you're useless at the moment, unable to do all that you want to do. Well, perhaps we should relax into that to let it go to accept that this might be a period of, of ordinary a time, a time of shaping, preparing, growing, and learning. And finally, none of us come as the, finally, as the finished, fully formed article. None of us in those light bulb moments are changed completely. We all need to grow. Uh, faith is a journey, and I believe in a God who's ahead of us, constantly drawing us forward into new possibilities. Have you stopped growing? Have you circled the wagons around what you know already and started to defend it? Have you stopped learning new things? You see, I believe in a God who is still active, still drawing us forwards, teaching us new things, and our task is perhaps not to be so defensive be it the end of slavery, the Black Lives Matter movement, or justice for all? Could it be our climate crisis and the need to make radical and difficult changes to our lifestyles? Could it be inclusion and the truth that all, that we are all connected, all brothers and sisters, all children of God? Baked into the very story of the Bible are stories of growth, of change, and of the need to occasionally look back and reinterpret the old stories in the light of the new. This is what I think it means for the story to be living and acted, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Religious institutions often become obsessed with protecting and preserving the past. This is what we've always done. This is the way we've always done it. They stop growing and they die. We are learning so much and God is teaching us so much. Let's be open to what God is doing and not closed, forward-looking and not defensive, alive to the awe and wonder of all that God is doing right now in the world, right in the midst of this pandemic of so much pain and so much suffering. God is at work and everything is an invitation to grow, to learn and to change. Sometimes we're silent, sometimes waiting, but not unproductive, learning, reflecting, and growing. And if Paul had to do that, then maybe we do too. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for moments of encounter, moments of transformation. They are important. But we also thank you for the journey of life, the way that you are always leading us on, leading us forwards as individuals and as a church community. Lord, I thank you for the way that Paul didn't simply reject his heritage, but looked back and reimagined, reinterpreted and found you, Jesus, at the heart of his own tradition. 
how that changed and transformed him and now in turn how he was able to transform much of the world around him. For those years that he spent where we don't hear what was going on in his life but that you shaped and transformed him ready for the role you had for him. May that be true for us as well. Keep us open, keep us learning, keep us looking forwards to what you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.